Chapter Six of The Orphan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Orphan, by Clarence E. Mulford, Chapter Six, The Orphan Obeys an Impulse. When Sneed promised to try to restrain his men, he spoke in good faith, and when he discovered that half of them were missing, his anger began to rise. But he was helpless now because they were beyond his reach, so he could only hope that they would not meet the sheriff, not only because of the displeasure of the peace officer, but also because good cowboys were hard to obtain, and he knew what such a meeting might easily develop into. The foreman knew that Ford Station bore him and his ranch no love, and that if the sheriff should meet with armed resistance, and possibly mishap at the hands of any members of the Cross Bar Eight, that trouble would be the tune for him and his men to dance to. Angrily striding to and fro in front of the bunkhouse, he gave a profane and pointed lecture to several of his men who stood near, abashed at their foreman's anger. He suddenly stopped and looked toward the rocky stretch of land and hurled epithets at what he feared might be taking place in its defiles and among its rocks and boulders. "'Fools!' he shouted, shaking his fist at the backbone. "'Fools to hunt a man like that on his own ground, and in the way you do it! You can't keep together for long, and as sure as you separate, some of you will be missing tonight!' Had he been able, he would have seen six cowboys, who were keeping close together as they worked their way southward, exploring every arroyo and examining every thicket and boulder. Their colts were in their hands, and their nerves were tense to the snapping point. They finally came to the stage road, and after a brief consultation, plunged into it and scrambled up the opposite bank, where they left one of their number on guard while they continued on their search. The guard found concealment behind a huge boulder which stood on the edge of the canyon above the entrance. He lighted a cigarette, and the thin wisps of pale blue smoke slowly made their way above him twisting and turning, halting for an instant, and then speeding upward as straight as a rod. It was strong tobacco and very aromatic, and when the wind caught it up in filmy clouds and carried it away it could be detected for many feet. Five minutes had passed since the searchers had become lost to sight to the south, when something moved on the other side of the canyon, and then became instantly quiet as the smoke streamed up. The guard was cleverly hidden from sight, but he felt that he must smoke, for time passed slowly for him. Again something moved, this time behind a thin clump of mesquite. Gradually it took on the outlines of a man, and he was intently watching the tell-tale vapor, the odor of which had warned him in time. Retreating, he was soon lost to sight, and a few minutes later he peered through a thin thicket which stood on the edge of the canyon wall. As he did so, the guard stuck his head out from the shelter of his boulder and glanced along the trail. Again, seeking his cover, he finished his cigarette and lighted another. "'He won't look again for a few minutes, the fool,' muttered the other, as he dropped into the road and darted across it. After a bit of cautious climbing, he gained the top of the canyon wall and again became lost to sight. Still the smoke ascended fitfully from behind the boulder, and the prowler gradually drew near it, at last gaining the side opposite the smoker. He crouched and slowly crawled around it, his left hand holding a colt, 
his right a lariat. As the guard again turned to examine the lower end of the canyon, his eyes looked into a steady gun, and while his wits were rallying to his aid the rope leaped at him and neatly dropped over his shoulders, pinning his arms to his side. It twitched and a loop formed in it, running swiftly and almost horizontally. It whipped over his head and tightened about his throat, while another loop sped after it and assisted in throttling the puncher. Then the lariat twitched and whirled, and loops ran along it and fastened over the guard's wrists, rapidly getting shorter. And when it ceased, its wielder was brought to the side of his trust victim. The bound man was turning purple in the face and neck, and his captor, hastily crowding the guard's own neckerchief into the open, gasping mouth, released the throat-clutch of the rawhide and then securely fixed the gag into place. Roughly dragging his captive to a mass of debris, he tore it apart and dragged and pushed the man into it, after which he pushed the rubbish back into place and then ran to the boulder, where he covered all tracks. Picking up the puncher's revolver, he took the cylinder from it and hurled it far out on the plain, throwing the frame across the defile into a tangled mass of mesquite. Looking carefully about him, to be sure he had not overlooked anything, he disappeared in the direction from which he had come. He again appeared in the canyon, and ran swiftly along it, until he came to the tracks made by the guard's horse, which he followed into an arroyo, and where he found the animal hobbled. Loosening the hobbles, he threw them over the horse's neck and sprang into the saddle. He picked his way carefully until he had reached the level plain when he cantered northward, keeping close to the rock wall of the backbone to avoid being seen by the searchers. When he had put a dozen miles behind him, he turned abruptly to the east, soon becoming lost to sight behind the scattered chaparrals. The orphan, surmounting a rise, looked to the southwest, and saw something which almost caused his hair to rise, and raising hair was not the rule with him which latter is mentioned to give proper emphasis to the seriousness of what he looked upon. He leaped to the ground and saw that the cinches were securely fastened, after which he vaulted back into the saddle, and instead of offering prayer for success, sent a profanity at the possibility of failure. Two miles to the southwest of him he saw six horses flattened almost to earth in keeping the speed they had attained and were holding. Back of them lurched and rocked and heaved the sun-bleached coach, dull gray and dusty, its tall driver standing up to his work, hatless and with his arm rapidly rising and falling as he sent the cruel whip cruelly home. Behind the stage whipped the baggage flap, a huge leathern apron for the protection of luggage, standing out horizontally because of the rush of wind caused by the speed of the coach. It flapped defiantly at what so tenaciously pursued it. A thousand yards to the rear, riding in crescent formation, the horns now far apart and well ahead of the center, were five arm-and-weapon-waving bronzed enthusiasts whose war-paint could just be discerned by the orphan's good eyes and field-glasses. As yet the reason for the lifting hair has not been disclosed, because the orphan was proud in his belief that he had few nerves and a dormant sympathy and this scene alone would not have aroused much sympathy in his heart for the driver, and neither would it have changed the malevolent expression which disfigured his face, 
an expression caused by the remembrance of six cowboys who had searched for him as if he was a cowardly, cattle-killing coyote. But the exuberant baggage flap revealed two trunks, three valises, and a pile of white cardboard boxes. And, as if this was not enough for a man adept at sign-reading, the door of the coach suddenly became unfastened and alternately swung open and shut as the lurching of the coach affected it. And through the intermittent opening he could see a mass of gray and brown and blue. The orphan had spent ten years of his life battling against the hardest kinds of odds, and his brain had forsworn long methods of thinking, and had adopted shortcuts to conclusions. His mental processes were sharp, quick, and acted instantly on his nerves, often completing an action before he became clearly conscious of its need. He forgot the pleasant sheriff and the unpleasant, blundering cowboys, who, very probably, were now engaged in wondering where their companion had gone. And he forgot his determination to return and free that puncher. He asked himself no questions as to why or how but simply sunk his spurs half an inch into a horse that had peculiar and fixed ideas about their use, and that now bucked, pitched, and galloped forward, because its rider had suddenly decided to save those gray and brown and blue dresses. The Apaches had passed the point immediately south of him, and were now more to the west, going at right angles to the course he took. They were so intent upon gaining yard upon yard that they did not look to the side. Their thoughts were centered on the tall, lanky man who stood up against the sky and cursed them, and whose hat they had passed miles back. As he turned and stole a look at them which had so pleased him, they only waved guns and wasted cartridges more recklessly, yelling savagely. Down from the north charged a brown, a dirty brown horse, and it was comparatively fresh. It gained steadily, silently and its gains were measured in yards to each minute it ran, since it was coming at a sharp angle. Astride of it, and lying along its neck, was a man whose spurs and quirt urged it to its uttermost effort. Soon the man straightened up in his saddle, the horse braced its legs and slid to a stand as a rifle arose to the rider's shoulder, and at the shot the animal leaped forward at its top speed. A puff of smoke flashed past the marksman's head to mingle with the dust-cloud in his wake, and the nearest brave, who was the last in the crescent, dropped sprawlingly to the ground and rolled rapidly several times. His horse, freed of its burden, ran off at an angle and was soon left behind. The excitement of the chase and the noise of the hoofbeats of their own horses and of the reports of their own rifles effectually lost the report of the shot and soon another and nearest Apache also plunged to the plain. This time the freed horse shot ahead and ranged alongside the wearer of the headdress, who turned in his saddle and looked back. His eyesight was good, but not good enough to see the fifty-caliber slug which passed through his abdomen and tore the ear of another warrior's horse. The rider of the horse owning the mutilated ear looked quickly backward, screamed a warning and war-cry all in one, and began to shoot rapidly. His surprised companion followed suit as the coach came to a stand, and another rifle, long silent, took a hand in the dispute with a vim as if to make up for lost time. The first warrior fell, shot through by both rifles, and the other, 
emptying his magazine at the new factor, who was very busily engaged in extracting a jammed cartridge, wheeled his pony about and fled toward the south, panic-stricken by the accuracy of the newcomer and terrorized by the awful execution. But the Apache's last shot nearly cleaned the sheriff's slate, grazing the orphan's temple and stunning him. A fraction of an inch more to the right would have cheated the crossbar eight of any chance of revenge. Bill, still holding the rifle, leaped to the sand and ran to where his rescuer lay huddled in the dust of the plain. "'I've got your smoking!' he exclaimed breathlessly, at last getting rid of his mental burden. Then he stopped short, swore, and bent over the figure, and grasping the body firmly by the neck and thigh, slung it over his shoulders and staggered toward the coach, his progress slow and laborious because of the deep sand and dust. As he neared his objective, he glanced up and saw that his passengers had left the stage and were grouped together on the plain, like lambs lost in a lion country. They were hysterical, and all talked at once, sobbing and wringing their hands. But when they noticed the driver stumbling toward them with the body across his shoulders, their tongues became suddenly mute with a new fear. Up to then they had thought only of their own woes and bruises, but here, perhaps, was death. Here was the man who had risked his life that they might live, and he might have lost as they gained. They besieged Bill with tearful questions and gave him no chance to reply. He staggered past them and placed his burden in the scant shadow of the coach, while they cried aloud to the sight of the blood-stained face, frozen in their tracks with fear and horror. Bill, ignoring them, hastily climbed with a wonderful celerity for him to the high seat and dropped to the ground with a canteen which he had torn from its fastenings. Pouring its contents over the upturned face, he half-emptied a pocket-flask of whiskey into the orphan's mouth, and then fell to chafing and rubbing with his calloused, dust-covered hands, well knowing the nature of the wound and that it had only stunned. Soon the eyelids quivered, fluttered, and then flew back, and the cruel eyes stared unblinkingly into those of the man above him, who swore in sudden joy. Then, weak as he was and only by the aid of an indomitable will, the wounded man bounded to his feet and stood swaying slightly as one hand reached out to the stage for support, the other instinctively leaping to his colt. He swayed still more as he slowly turned his head and searched the plain for his foes, the colt half drawn from its holster. As soon as he had gained his feet and while he was looking about him in a dazed way, the women began to talk again, excitedly, hysterically. They gathered around this unshaven, blood-stained man and tried to thank him for their lives, their voices broken with sobs. He listened, vaguely conscious of what they were trying to say, until his brain cleared and made him capable of thought. Then he ceased to sway and spread his feet far apart to stand erect. His hand went to his head for the sombrero which was not there, and he smiled as he recalled how he had lost it. Oh, how can we ever thank you? cried the sheriff's eldest sister, choking back a nervous sob. How can we ever thank you for what you have done? You saved our lives, she cried, shuddering at the danger now past. You saved our lives! You saved our lives! she repeated excitedly, clasping and unclasping her hands in her agitation. How can we ever thank you? How can we? 
cried the girl who had fainted when the chase had begun. It was splendid! Splendid! she cried, swaying in her weakness. She was so white and bruised and frail that the orphan felt pity for her and started to say something, but had no chance. The three women monopolized the conversation even to the exclusion of Bill, who suddenly felt that his talking ability was only commonplace after all. Blood trickled slowly down the outlaw's face as he smiled at them and tried to calm them, and the younger sister, suddenly realizing the meaning of what she had vaguely seen, turned to Bill with an imperative gesture. "'Bring me some water, driver, immediately,' she commanded impatiently, and Bill hurried around to the rear axle from which swung a small keg of three gallons capacity. Quickly unsnapping the chain from it, he returned and pried out the wooden plug, slowly turning the keg until water began to flow through the hole and trickle down to the sand. Miss Shields took a small handkerchief from her waist and unfolded it, to be stopped by Bill. "'Don't spoil that, miss!' he hastily exclaimed. "'Take one of mine. They ain't worth much, and besides, they're a whole lot bigger.' "'Thank you, but this is better,' she replied, smiling as she regarded the dusty neckerchief which he eagerly held out to her. She wet the bit of clean linen, and Bill followed her as she stepped to the side of the outlaw, holding the keg for her and thinking that the sheriff was not the only thoroughbred to bear the name of Shields. He turned the keg for her as she needed water, and she bathed the wound carefully, pushing back the long hair which persisted in getting in her way, all the time vehemently declining the eager offers of assistance from her companions. The orphan had involuntarily raised his hand to stop her, feeling foolish at so much attention given to so trivial a wound, and not at all accustomed to such things, especially from women with wonderful, deep black eyes. "'Please do not bother me,' she commanded, pushing his hand aside. "'You can at least let me do this little thing, when you have done so much, or I shall think you selfish.' He stood as a bad boy stands when unexpectedly rewarded for some good deed, uncomfortable because of the ridiculous seriousness given to his gash, and ashamed because he was glad of the attention. He tried not to look at her, but somehow his eyes would not stray from her face, her heavy mass of black hair and her wonderful eyes. "'You make me think that I'm really hurt,' he feebly expostulated as he capitulated to her deft hands. "'Now if it was a real wound, why, it might be all right. But, pshaw, all this fuss and feathers about a scratch!' "'Indeed!' she cried, dropping the stained handkerchief to the ground as she took another from her dress, plastering his hair back with her free hand. "'I suppose you would rather have what you call a real wound. You should be thankful that it is no worse. Why, just the tiniest bit more, and you would have—' She shuddered as she thought of it and turned quickly away and tore a strip of linen from her skirt. Straightening up and facing him again, she ripped off the trimming and carefully plucked the loose threads from it. Folding it into a neat bandage, she placed the handkerchief over the wound, after pushing back the rebellious hair and bound it into place with the strip, deftly patting it here and pushing it there until it suited her. Then, drawing it tight, she unfastened the gold breastpin which she wore at her throat and pinned the bandage into place, stepping back to regard her work with satisfaction. There!" she cried, laughing delightedly. 
You look real well in a bandage. But I am sorry there is need for one," she said, sobering instantly. But then it could have been much worse, very much worse, couldn't it?" she asked, smiling brightly. Before the orphan could reply, Bill saw a break in the conversation, or thought he did, and hastened to say something, for he felt unnatural. "'I got your smokin', orphan,' he cried, clambering up to his seat. Leastwise, I had before them war-hoops. Yep, here she is, right side up and fine and dandy." Could he have seen the look which the outlaw flashed at him, he would have quailed with sudden fear. Three gasps arose in chorus, and the women drew back from the outlaw, fearful and shocked and severe. But with the sheriff's younger sister it was only momentarily, for she quickly recovered herself and the look of fear left her eyes. So this, then, was the dreaded orphan, the outlaw of whom her brother had written. This young, sinewy, good-looking man, who had swayed so unsteadily on his feet, was the man the stories of whose outrages had filled the pages of Eastern newspapers and magazines. Could he possibly be guilty of the murders ascribed to him? Was he capable of the inhumanity which had made his name a synonym of terror? As she wondered, torn by conflicting thoughts, he looked at her unflinchingly, and his thin lips wore a peculiar smile, cynical and yet humorous. Bill leaped to the ground with the smoking tobacco, and, blissfully unconscious of what he had done, continued unruffled. "'That was de blank fine, begging the lady's pardon,' he cried. "'Yes, sir, it was plumb sumptuous, it sure was. And when I tell the sheriff how you saved his sisters, he'll be some tickled. You just bet he will. And I'll tell it right, too. Just leave the telling of it to me." Lord, when I looked back to see how far them war-hoops were from my back hair, and saw you tearing along like you was a sure-enough express train, I just had to yell I was so tickled. It was just like I held a pair of deuces in a big jackpot and drew two more. My, but didn't I feel good! And say! Whenever you run out of smoking again, you just flag Bill Howland's chariot. You can have all he's got. That's straight, you bet. Bill Howland don't forget a turn like that, never." The enthusiasm he looked for did not materialize, and he glanced from one to another as he realized that something was up. "'Come, dears, let us go,' said Mary Shields, lifting her skirts and abruptly turning her back on the outlaw. We evidently have far to go, and we have wasted so much time. Come, Grace," she said to her friend, stepping toward the coach. Bill stared and wondered how much time had been wasted, since never before had he reached that point in so short a time. He had made two miles to every one at his regular speed. "'Come, Helen,' came the command from the elder, and with a trace of surprise and impatience. "'Sister!' Why, Mary, how can you be so mean?" retorted the girl with the black eyes, angry and indignant at the unkindness of the cut, her face flushing at its injustice. Her spirit was up in arms immediately, and she deliberately walked to the orphan and impulsively held out her hand, her sister's words deciding the doubts in her mind in the outlaw's favor. "'Forgive her,' she cried. She doesn't mean to be rude. She is so very nervous and this afternoon has been too much for her." It was a man's act, 
a brave man's act, and one which I will always cherish, for I will never forget this day, never, never," she reiterated earnestly. I don't care what they say about you, not a bit. I don't believe it, for you could not have done what you have if you are as they paint you. I will not wait for our driver to tell my brother about your splendid act. He, at least, shall know you as you are, and some day he will return it, too." Then she looked from him to her hand. "'Will you not shake hands with me? Show me that you are not angry. Are you fair to me to clasp me as an enemy, just because my brother is the sheriff?' He looked at her in wonderment, and his face softened as he took the hand. "'Thank you,' he said simply. You are kind and fair. I do not think of you as an enemy." "'Helen! Are you coming?' came from the coach. He smiled at the words and then laughed bitterly, recklessly, his shoulders unconsciously squaring. There was no malice in his face, only a quizzical, baffling cynicism. "'Oh, it's a shame!' she cried, her eyes growing moist. She made a gesture of helplessness and looked him full in the eyes. "'Whatever you have done in the past, you will give them no cause to say such things in the future, will you? You will leave it all behind you and get work, and not be an outlaw any more, won't you? You will prove my faith in you, for I have faith in you, won't you? It will all be forgotten,' she added, as if her words made it so. Then she leaned forward to readjust the bandage. There, now it's all right. You must not touch it again like that." "'You are alone in your faith,' he replied bitterly, not daring to look at her. "'Oh, I reckon not,' muttered Bill, scowling at the stage, as if he would like to unhitch it and leave it there. Then, seeing the orphan glance at the horse, which was grazing contentedly, he went out to capture the animal. "'The blanked old hen, that's what she is,' he muttered fiercely. I don't care if she is the sheriff's sister, that's just what she is, just a regular, ingrowing disposition." "'You are kind, as kind as you are beautiful,' the orphan responded simply. "'But you don't know.' She flushed at his words, and then decided that he spoke in simple sincerity. "'I know that you are going to do differently,' she replied as she extended her hand again. "'Good-bye. He bowed his head as he took it and flushed. Goodbye. She slowly turned and walked toward the coach, where she was received by a chilly silence. Bill brought the horse to where the orphan stood lost in thought, unbuckled his cartridge belt and wrapped it around the pommel of the saddle, the heavy colt still in the holster. Then he clambered up for his rifle and tied it to the saddle skirt by the thongs of leather which dangled therefrom. Looking about him, he espied the keg on the sand, and, driving home the plug, slung it behind the cantle of the saddle where he fastened it by the straps which held the outlaw's slicker. Jamming the package of tobacco into the pocket of the garment, he stepped back and grinned sheepishly at his generous gifts. He turned abruptly and strode to the outlaw and shoved out his hand. "'There, pardner, shake!' he cried heartily. "'You're the best man in the whole de-blanked cow country.' and I'll tell him so, too, by God!" 
The outlaw came out of his reverie and looked him searchingly in the face as he gripped the outstretched hand with a grip which made the driver wince. "'Don't be a fool, Bill,' he replied. "'You'll get yourself disliked if you enthuse about me.' Then he noticed the additions to his equipment and frowned. "'You better take those things. I can't. The spirit is enough.' "'Oh, you borrow them till you see me again,' replied Bill. "'You may need them,' he added, as he wheeled and walked to the coach. He climbed to his seat and wrapped the lines about his hands, cracking the whip as soon as he could, and the coach lurched on its way to Ford Station, the driver grunting about fool old maids who didn't know enough to be glad they were alive. The orphan hesitated about the gifts, and then decided to take them for the time. He mounted and rode past the coach door, keeping near to the flank of the last horse, where he listened to Bill's endless talk. "'How is it that you've got a cross-bar eight cayuse?' Bill asked at length, too idiotically happy to realize the significance of his question. The orphan's hand leaped suddenly and then stopped and dropped to the pommel, and he looked up at the driver. "'Oh, one of their punchers and I sort of swapped,' he laughingly replied thinking of the man under the debris. "'Say, if I don't get as far as the canyon with you, just climb up above on the left-hand side near the entrance and release a fool puncher that is covered up under a pile of rubbish, will you?' "'I came near forgetting him, and I don't want him to die in that way.' As he spoke, he saw a group of horsemen swing over a rise and knew them instinctively. "'There's the gang now. Tell them. I'm off for a ride.' he said, dropping back to the coach door, where he raised his hand to his head and bowed. End of chapter 6